Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg with the Green Root Podcast. For this episode, we have Gary McFarlane. Gary is Ecosystem Defense Director for Friends of the Clearwater. He's responsible for tracking public land issues in the Clearwater Basin. His duties include analyzing public land agency proposals and policies, submitting public comments, filing appeals of federal agency decisions, and when necessary, coordinating litigation. Gary has over 30 years of activist experience and is very familiar with Forest Service policy. He has been recognized as one of the most effective activists in the Northern Rockies and was a recipient of the Alliance for the Wild Rockies Conservation Award in 1997. Gary holds a BS degree from Utah State University's College of Natural Resources. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Josh. Yeah, I'm psyched to have another wild person on. That's really uh, my passion is talking about the wild and that's what we're going to do. So let's get into simply what do you do? I explained it a little bit, but what do you do and frankly, why do you do it? Well, why I do it is I think we need to protect as much wild country as possible so that the process of evolution can continue. Uh, and for a bunch of other ethical reasons, you know, we haven't been very good earthlings as an industrial modern species, humankind, and, and I'm mainly speaking here, of course, the more privileged people in the West, and we have exploited a lot, and we haven't done that much to allow other life forms sort of their due on this planet. And that's why I'm a big supporter of things like wilderness and wild country and um, making sure that our interactions with these places are uh, less destructive. So part of my job is to analyze national forest documents and policies and also to promote policies that tend to uh, preserve and conserve the wildness and wild lands, wildlife, or watersheds of the national forest system. We focus mainly in the Clearwater Basin, which translates roughly to the Nez Perce and Clearwater National Forests. A portion of the Idaho Panhandle National Forest and the Bitterroot National Forest also fall within sort of that broader area, as well as some lands managed by the Bureau of Land Management and the public lands. So that's um, sort of the focus of our mission at Friends of the Clearwater. Excellent. And I've heard of Idaho. I think it's somewhere near Montana. If I, <laughs> I was out there a couple times. Actually, my dad years ago was he did a uh, fire lookout thing when they were still doing those, and he took me years later to visit that area in. Uh, I can't remember it now off the top of my head, but basically an area adjacent to Montana near the Bitterroot, I believe, and. It was too snowed in, so we couldn't go up there, but it's beautiful country. And a lot of times when you hear Idaho, of course, what you think potatoes, you think of a brown farm fields, but that ain't what Idaho really is. So tell us a little bit about the landscape. Well, it's a very unique place. The Clearwater Basin is sort of the southern end of what a scientist that was at Washington State University many, many years ago, several decades ago, called the Inland Wet Belt or Inland uh, Temperate Rainforest. Uh, the Clearwater Basin is wetter than the drier parts of the Rockies. It has species that 
are found only on the coast, like uh, Pacific dogwood, for example, in places. But it's not as wet as, say, a place like the Olympic Peninsula or the west side of the Cascades. So it's sort of a combination of the Rockies and some of these wetter forests. So the plant and animals here have evolved uh, with sort of that wet environment, at least compared to the rest of the Rockies. So you'll find um, western red cedar here, but you'll also find it sometimes growing next to a dry species like ponderosa pine. You'll find in some wetter areas that include species like the Coeur salamander, which has a, a close relative on the Pacific coast. And the Clearwater Basin itself was not glaciated except for the higher countries in the Bitterroot Mountains or the Clearwater Mountains or the Salmon River Mountains, as some people call them. So it is sort of a hotspot for endemism. Well, species like I mentioned, the Coeur d'Alene salamander, that's where they were and reoccupied uh, much of the Idaho panhandle, northwest Montana, southeastern British Columbia from uh, the populations that were here originally in the Clearwater Basin that escaped the glaciation, the large continental ice sheets or the large glaciation that came down the um, Rocky Mountain Trench. Excellent. Yeah, so I remembered the place that I was in years ago near Locksaw Lodge, which I think burned down also maybe a decade ago. It did, ago. but it's been rebuilt. The Locksaw Lodge, the Locksaw River is right in the heart of the Clearwater country. The Locksaw and the Selway River uh, together form the Middle Fork of the Clearwater. Uh, and so it's some of the wildest country. Uh, parts of the uh, Locksaw drainage are within the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness as is much of the uh, Selway River. That's a large chunk, about 1.3 million acres of protected wilderness. And there's another half million acres, maybe even a little more, surrounding the Selway Bitterroot that could be part of that wilderness in the upper locks in places like Meadow Creek. So it's a spectacular chunk of country. Uh, we also have points further north, the North Fork of the Clearwater. Um, spectacular wildlands up there, three large chunks uh, that are within or straddle national forests, adjacent national forests like the Idaho Panhandle National Forest or the Lolo. They're each over a quarter million acres in size and they're only divided from each other by some rough dirt roads. So hmm. there's some wild country um, here and then uh, the headwaters of the Selway River itself are within the uh, Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, which is the largest contiguous block of wild country, either roadless or designated wilderness, regardless of how you calculate that, in the lower 48 states. So it's a spectacular re region, and it includes almost all the species that were here originally. Um, species like grizzly bears, uh, we've, there were at least two or three that were found last year. They were wandering in one probably uh, overwintered in the Clearwater country on the Nez Perce National Forest and was seen early in uh, the spring this year. And the only other species that isn't here that we know of uh, right now is the uh, mountain caribou. It used to inhabit parts of the Clearwater Basin and got as far south actually as the Salmon River historically. So. Yeah, it is incredible country. I was really surprised when I saw it. I haven't really been back since. I would like to, 
it, would you say that it's one of the last places in the U.S. where you could live close to some of these areas and it's not all overrun with people, unlike Colorado, where I live? <laughs> I would say so, but I don't, don't tell that to anybody else. <laughs> people are not invited to Idaho. Don't take people this as an invited. invitation. Because it doesn't tend to have these spectacular peaks like you might find in the Tetons or some of the iconic peaks uh, like you find in Colorado there near the Maroon Bells yep. and Maroon Bell Snowmass Wilderness, that very iconic picture. It's not as famous as some of these other places. And much of the elevation is lower here uh, compared to the rest of the Rockies. Uh, so, for example, the uh, Selway River at the confluence with the Locksaw is only about Oh, 1,500 or so, 1,400, 1,500 feet uh, in elevation, which isn't that high, uh, yet it, it's relatively wet. Van Ranger Station, which is just up Selway away, gets about 40 inches a year. And so that's why you have the Western Red Cedar and the hmm. Pacific Dogwood and Pacific Yew and a, a lot of ferns and other species that are only found in these wetter areas on the coast. Right, right. So we talked a little bit about recreation just now in terms of people. So let's get a little bit into what's known as the Great American Outdoors Act, which I believe was just signed into law. I could be incorrect about that, but I think that's, that's right. Just signed into law this week. So, all right, I look at it and I see the word great. I'm like, well, that, that sounds good, right? American. Hey, we're Americans. Outdoors. Yeah. We all love that. So... Sound, this sounds like a slam dunk. Everything's great about it, right? Or would you say maybe not so much? Well, that's the way it sounds. And there are some problems. And I think when we look at the details, I think the devil is in the details. Um, that's not to say that the sentiments behind this piece of legislation weren't positive. Um, a couple of the main components are fully funding the Land and Water Conservation Fund for purchases of land. And of course, there's already a sort of a limit on the amount that can be purchased in national forests in the West. It was mainly intended, I think, to purchase land in the East. So that's one component. The other component uh, is a recreation component and is to look at the infrastructure and spend money on some of the so-called backlog, and I think we can get into kind of both details because one of the big problems is when you look at the funding mechanism for uh, this piece of legislation, and I think that's sort of an overriding problem. Sure. Well, let's get into let's get into some brass tacks here. Where do you want to start? I can read just some of the language real quick because it's super short. Uh, so, and then we'll maybe go into that, but. What I'm seeing here is just uh, to establish, fund, and provide for the use of amounts in a, na in a national parks and public land legacy restoration fund to address the maintenance backlog of the National Park Service, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, and the Bureau of Indian Education, and to provide permanent dedicated funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund and for other purposes. So, yeah, what does this all mean? Well... Let's take a look at the Land and Water Conservation Fund first, because um, in some ways that's perhaps the, the least controversial uh, part, unless 
you are one of the Westerners who hates public lands and right. probably would feel more comfortable relocating to a state well east of the Mississippi that has very little public land. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the ideologues here in the West don't want to see any more uh, public land and, in fact, would like to take over the federal public land um, for state and or private interests. But aside from that, the Land and Water Conservation Fund is intended to purchase land uh, for conservation purposes. But the problem is, and this is one of the details that I think is overlooked, is that money for that fund all comes from offshore oil and gas lease revenues. So one could argue that it's a win for conservation, but in terms of climate, it is not such a good idea. Yeah. And in fact, there's a, a hypocrisy here that some uh, in the Republican Party have actually pointed out, people that were opposed to this legislation because they didn't want to support any kind of conservation at all, they did point out that how come you're funding this good conservation program from a dirty source of energy? So I think that right there is the big weakness in the whole land and water conservation funding mechanism. And also uh, some of that money is also used for other funding for this legislation. So that right there, I think, is a huge problem. Okay. Is it sort of, would you say, incentivizing more of that e extraction in a sense, or is it just that it's tainted by depending on that sort of funding mechanism? Well, that, it's interesting because it's going to put uh, the conservation community writ large in sort of a dilemma. And um, people in um, political offices who support this they, some of them may have a dilemma as well um, because it is an incentive to do more offshore oil and gas leasing and or exploration. So mm -hmm. uh, that is a problem. In the, in the past, Congress restricted how much money would actually be spent to the Land and Water Conservation Fund. This uh, basically fully funds it. But if those revenues go down, then the benefits of the Land and Water Conservation Fund won't fully be realized. And if that revenue goes down, though, it would be better for uh, the climate as a whole. So a different funding mechanism definitely should have been uh, considered and put forward, but it wasn't. And I think that's um, a major flaw. Do you think that was a devious way to split conservationists? Because theoretically, what we could see is funding dwindling and then conservationists advocating for more drilling is, hey, we got to fund we got to fund our nature here. So we need to do more drilling so we can get that money so we can protect nature. <laughs> yes, it could happen. And um, some of the large environmental groups uh, who are very supportive of this, uh, a couple of them recognized uh, the, the problem there, but seemed to sort of dismiss it and want to gloss over it. Yes, that is a, a problem. And I can draw an analogy from what I have seen over the years in sort of watchdogging national forests. The Forest Service has the ability to keep 
certain revenues from logging on the national forest through various mechanisms, be they uh, under the rubric of salvage logging or be it under uh, some of the older uh, processes called uh, the Newton-Vandenberg Act, which uh, dates back uh, many decades. It allowed them to keep some of the revenues for brush, brush disposal and reclamation and whatnot. So what ended up happening is that you have maybe wildlife biologists who support logging on the national forest system, probably greater than what it can sustain, so they can fund their wildlife programs. So yeah. that's kind of a similar um, situation to, I think, the Land and Water Conservation Fund being funded by offshore oil and gas lease revenues. Um, I think maybe years ago people thought that was somewhat poetic justice, Mm. But I'm not sure that it makes sense in today's world. Sure. Well, something worth noting is that this was the sponsor of this bill is Senator Cory Gardner. He is here in Colorado. He's a Republican. Now, he's he's sort of a little different kind of Republican, I suppose. But and certainly the Democrats do not always have the natural world's best interest at heart either, but I have to admit that's a little bit suspicious when a Republican is the one who is introducing uh, environmental policy. Although we have to say it was Nixon who did move forward the EPA and other things like that. So what do you think about that? Well, I, I think it is very political and we live in a hyper-political world right now. I think it was done to give some green cover to vulnerable Republicans and uh, that's probably why the president signed the legislation, or at least one of the reasons he signed it, because there are senators like Gardner and like Danes in Montana, who's also a Republican, who supported this legislation strongly to try to get some credentials, as it were, um, for conservation, because they're both facing um, some pretty stiff challenges in um, their re-election bids here this year. I see. So yeah. I, I do see it as, as very political. And that's not to say that Republicans and Democrats can't be good conservationists. Mm -hmm. um, historically, you know, there were members of both parties that were. Of course, that was a different time. Uh, and also, we didn't realize that with close to 8 billion people on the planet now, and with issues like the global warming and whatnot, uh, that it's business as usual just isn't going to work anymore if we want to have a decent planet for future generations, not just of human beings, but of grizzly bears, of caribou, of salmon, of steelhead, and everything else. Absolutely. So the bill talks about this maintenance backlog do you want to talk a little bit about that, and then we can get into the recreation element? Uh, yes, I think the maintenance backlog really goes right into that recreation element, I think, of the bill. Okay. Uh, and a part of it, and that locally here, uh, there are some people that were supporting various ideas uh, to... Um, fix some roads, for example, on the Nez Perce and Clearwater National Forests, um, improvement of these roads. Um, but the problem is, is these roads are built in places where roads should probably have never been built. And 
they're falling off the side of the mountain and the Forest Service has tried to maintain them. But then another landslide comes in and this part of the world is prone to landslides due to the geology anyway, but roads tend to exacerbate the frequency of these landslides. Is an example here from the Nez Perce and Clearwater National Forests, and that includes roads, what I call roads to nowhere. These roads are old, but they're on a geological substrate that just isn't conducive to a long-term road maintenance. They tend to fall off the mountain, yet people are pushing for maintenance of some of these roads that lead from the Selway River in particular, uh, the Coolwater Ridge Road, the big you know, the Fog Mountain Road and the Indian Hill Road. And so that's a, a problem in and of itself from an ecological perspective as should these roads even be here and what kind of money is it going to take to maintain these roads and at what cost because roads are the biggest contributor to sediment in a place like the Clearwater Basin and sediment is not good for fish. So that's one of the problems I see how it feeds into recreation. But these roads, uh, though they are used for recreation, some people want to upgrade them uh, so larger and bigger vehicles can get up there. And interestingly enough, the Forest Service itself decided that uh, in the case of the road called Coolwater Ridge, that rather than make it accessible to full-size horse trailers, to go into the Selway Bitter Wilderness on the western part of the wilderness, that it would be the campgrounds and trailheads on the Selway River itself, uh, lower elevation, uh, much easier place to maintain the road. That's where the horses should be starting any trip into the backcountry. Hmm. So that's just a very specific example here that some of the recreational infrastructure, i.e. these roads, uh, may not be possible to maintain, or if you do, you can have a lot of resource damage in trying to do that. There's also another issue you mentioned, some of the lookouts. Well, there's some old lookouts or old cabins out there that the Forest Service has wanted to maintain rather than deciding whether or not they need them, and they spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to make them rental sites, but they might have one or two people that rent them in a year. So I think we need to look at what's the carrying capacity for the national forest or the national park. And does this infrastructure make sense today, knowing what we know about wildlife and about watersheds and about ecology? Because Recreation isn't benign. If it's low impact enough, it may have fewer bad negative effects on things like wildlife. But in Colorado, the Colorado Department of Wildlife, where you live, has found that backcountry recreation has caused the decline of elk herds in certain areas. So it's not benign and just trying to promote recreation has to be tempered by what's good for the land. And uh, that really isn't done with this great American Outdoors Act because in part, I think the conservation community 
has been somewhat co-opted by the recreation industry to the point that they are the surrogate voice for a conservation community in many places, including uh, certain media outlets. So I think that's a problem right there, is that we have to look at the carrying capacity of the land. And that's no longer considered, I guess, politically correct to do so because people want to promote more and more and more and more recreation. But it's not always good. Just because logging has impacts doesn't mean that recreation should should replace logging and that it will have no impact. Sure. And taking a look at the Forest Service website, it says there are more than 380,000 miles of roads and national forests. So some folks who haven't spent a lot of time in the deep national forest, they think, well, what's the harm of a couple roads? It ain't a couple roads. So you talked a little bit about the erosion from these roads, obviously, right? So the sediment goes into the streams and things like that. But then there's also the fragmentation, right? So it actually cut, it literally cuts the forest in pieces. So that's also a concern, correct? Oh, yes. There's all of these issues with these roads. And in many places, like here in the Clearwater or Nez Perce National Forests, roads located in certain places can have serious damage. And here's one of the dilemmas that the Forest Service faces. Roads right in the stream bottoms tend to have more impact on watersheds because they're right there and you have the sediment running off from the roads into the, the stream or the river. But yet certain landscapes on the ridge tops aren't good for roads either because they tend to just fall off and getting up there uh, is very difficult because of the soil and the landscape and the geology and the geomorphology. So you've got uh, serious problems there. Some places just aren't that good for roads, period. And the batholith in central and north central Idaho, it's called the Idaho batholith generally, but there's a couple of them here, are not places where roads are easily built or easily maintained and we have to keep that in mind and so every place is going to be a little bit different but roads have impacts because they bring more people they cause sediment and they fragment habitat right and then also a lot of people going out there of course that's how wildfires can start because people are being careless and it gets people deep into the forest but so we'll go a little bit more into recreation in a second but what should happen with these roads so if we don't want to repair them so more folks can go in there if that's not a good ecological decision should we just let them fall apart what's what are the options i think the options uh, you have to look at them on a case-by-case -case basis some of these roads maybe need to be converted to trails which are maybe easier to maintain for example or to the best degree possible some of them ought to be removed now the forest service about 20 years ago came up with what's called a roads policy to try to get a handle on the fact that, as you mentioned, there are 380,000 miles of roads in the national forest system and the agency cannot keep up with maintenance of that many roads. So that calls for a program of road removal coupled with a program of deciding what roads are really needed 
or necessary or what ones do we want to have. And unfortunately, the Forest Service in many places, including the two national forests um, that I like to watch, has decided that essentially the existing system is what we need. Hmm. And that creates all sorts of problems like the ones I just mentioned. There are roads to nowhere. There are roads that tend to slide every year that are in sensitive places. And maybe uh, we have to recognize that certain places, you just can't have as many roads as there are now. And it's going to be harder to access these places. And I think that's what has to happen. But the Forest Service hasn't honestly engaged in that process, at least here. It may have in other places. I would hope so. And that was the intent of the roads policy that was started when Dombeck was chief of the Forest Service, but it hasn't really resulted in much as of yet. So this concept of road removal, that sounds like the ecological choice, and it also sounds like a heck of a lot of jobs. So does this bill, does this bill encourage any road removal, or is it literally just entirely moving in the opposite direction, maintaining these roads or potentially even building more. I hope not. I hope not too, but I think it's fair to say that it would allow for some road removal, but that's not the main focus of the legislation, the way I read it. Of course, I'm not an attorney, so I can't speak to all the legalities, but the way I read the legislation, that's sort of a, sidelight and really what we need is some funding to do some major road removal in a way that is ecologically sound a lot of times the forest service will say they've removed the road when they just throw up a gate and it's still used people drive around it in um, maybe atvs or something even though it's supposed to be close to everything and they call that road removal or and this is another sidelight, you're another rabbit hole, so to speak. Um, money that is supposed to be for mitigation of the lower Snake River dams and the Clearwater River is perhaps the largest tributary in terms of uh, flow to the uh, Snake River is used to remove roads but then the Forest Service has used that to claim they're meeting their sediment guidelines in their existing forest plans. Therefore, they can log more. So a disincentive for a good road removal program from BPA for the Forest Service to actually log more. And that's just the opposite of what was intended with that mitigation. Of course, um, my opinion is the lower Snake River dams need to go if we still want to have wild salmon and steelhead in the Clearwater Basin or anywhere else. Uh, in the Snake River, but, uh, you know, that's another issue, but the point is when we choose to fund certain programs, and it gets back to Land and Water Conservation Fund, funding it through oil and gas revenues from offshore leasing seems not to be the best idea, and trying to use funding uh, that's intended as mitigation to meet something the Forest Service has to meet anyway, and that's our forest plan, uh, also is uh, an abuse of that funding. So I think road removal is a great thing, but I don't think we need, it has to be decoupled from 
bad incentives so that it can't be used to justify building a road here by removing a road there. Sure. And for those who have been familiar with national forest policy for a while, they understand that the Forest Service is not always the best steward. For those who are listening and who are just learning about what the Forest Service really does, well, I'm sorry, but you had to learn somehow. <laughs> so let's get into recreation here. So aside from the impact of the actual road itself, which we covered, is this mostly just because motorized vehicles are going to go in there? So let's talk about motorized vehicles and see then if there's actually more of a concern beyond that. But so motorized vehicles, what what's really the problem with with having them in national forests? It's 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 a way of getting say like elderly people in, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. They are, they are. There's nothing wrong with getting people in the national forest. But again, I think we have to look at things, issues such as carrying capacity and the impact. A motor vehicle. Can travel a lot further than someone on foot can, for example. So the overall impact is stretched out um, in, in a larger landscape that that person may have. And a lot of these roads, again, um, are in bad shape. And so they, some of them have been turned into motorized vehicle trails. So that doesn't necessarily remove all the impact in places. Uh, and in some places, they've been completely put to bed, which is uh, important as well. But motorized use does have an impact on wildlife. And in fact, there's been some recent studies that show that all recreation has an impact on wildlife. The least amount, interestingly enough, are people on foot and, or on horseback. And that's a study done by Wisdom, and that's a Forest Service researcher, I believe, uh, or um, an agency researcher has done some interesting study. And he looked mainly at elk and found out that even mountain bikes have a bigger impact on elk than do people on foot or people on horseback. So uh, that's uh, been some pretty interesting um, research. And that's when you look at recreation infrastructure, I think the point is, do we need as many trails as there are out there on the landscape now? Because they don't have money to maintain all the trails. And so do we need to have more trails? Or do we need fewer trails? Or do we need about the same number? And are the trails located in the right places? I mean, those are all important questions that need to be asked. And the Forest Service has done a very poor job, in my mind, in terms of recreation administration because they assume that trail maintenance is benign, that trail construction is benign, and that road maintenance is benign, and that road construction largely is benign. So while trails and roads are things that people use, are ways that people get into the national forests, uh, we have to look at, the, again, the carrying capacity of various places, and that's going to vary on a case-by-case -case basis, to see what kind of infrastructure we want, rather than assuming that what is there now is what is indeed needed. Yeah, well, here in Colorado, it's fairly nuts. So I moved here a little over six years ago, and I came here right before the big wave of everyone, 
And basically any of the somewhat known trailheads, even in the middle of the week, are mobbed. So I've literally changed my weekends to to the middle of the week so I can go out hiking without people. I go on the least busy day at the least busy time. And basically, unless I pick obscure areas, which I do because I just study the map and I find all these areas that nobody goes to, it's just full and full of people. And so obviously that's kind of annoying as a human, but <laughs> clearly it's having impact on wildlife. It, it can't not have an impact at a certain point uh, so we're talking not just about cars driving out, which obviously, but then there'd be ATVs and dirt bikes, bicycles, but even hiking. So even just people walking around have an impact. Well, what exactly is that impact on wildlife? It's just that they scare them? That's generally what it boils down to. There's a wildlife biologist, a grizzly bear expert hit told me once, his name is David Matson. he's very well known, he, he said that there are two things that are bad for grizzly bears. They combine, combine together, that's what makes it very dangerous. And it's the frequency of human contact, the more contact, the more likelihood of a, an encounter that is bad for the bear and or humans, and the lethality of the contact. In other words, armed humans versus unarmed humans. Hmm. And those, I think, are a couple of good things to think about when looking at wildlife. Frequency, when it comes to hiking, and it's generally the issue there, if there's a, a lot of use in a certain area, then wildlife will tend to avoid that area. Right. So Unless they become ultra-conditioned to uh, that many hikers. Then you have a mob, and then you may have some other resource damage mm -hmm. in terms of uh, trampling of landscapes, you know, and uh, whatnot. But that's uh, one uh, one way to look at it. Uh, that, and then of course the lethality of contact uh, also affects wildlife, uh, especially in an era like we experienced a hundred or so years ago, when anytime there was a predator on the landscape and somebody had a firearm, they would dispatch that predator, kill it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it seems like we're going back to that mentality in some places with the animus directed toward wolves, towards bears, um, um, and toward any other, uh, usually mammalian carnivores. Yeah, cougars. So, we're experiencing that here in Colorado where it's it's very... Uh, very strange messaging that's being put out. For instance, the uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, they're concerned about chronic wasting disease, which is an awful disease that occurs in elk and deer and moose. And they put out studies that show that mountain lions can somehow sense when an animal has that, or let's just put it this way. They make a lot of kills on those animals, which is good. It, it prevents those animals from spreading the disease. So they'll put out that study on one hand, and then on the other hand saying, we actually, we have too many cougars and we have to kill them off. And it's like, which is it, you know? And uh, that, that contradiction. Yeah, unfortunately that seems to be ubiquitous here in the West now. Uh, and that wasn't such a big issue, you know, even 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 
because I think we were in a slightly more enlightened time, maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, but we've been on sort of a downward uh, trend in recent years, and um, and it gets to kind of some of those issues. And part of it, too, is just, like you mentioned, the increase in the number of people. Uh, more people are now building homes in what's known as the wildland urban interface. So people are coming into contact with uh, wildlife more frequently, and we're also seeing more dangerous conflicts um, between humans and predators. And usually, even if a human is harmed or in an, an unfortunate uh, situation, if someone's killed, it's usually the predator will also end up uh, being killed, or or even if um, someone isn't uh, harmed, if there is an incident, sometimes the predators are killed then. So we're seeing a lot of this just because of the pressure in the backcountry. And I think that ties into recreation because there's been sort of a an idea or a meme, I guess, recently in the last couple decades that people aren't getting out enough anymore in the outdoors. We need to encourage young people to do that because we're all tied to our computers, supposedly. But there wasn't good data to suggest that that was indeed true. So there, are, there is an increasing amount of use in many of these places, like you're experiencing in Colorado, and like what we found here on the Nez Perce and Clearwater National Forest, even though they're not used by recreationists to the degree that you would find in probably all the national forests in Colorado, or at least most of them, there was an increase by two or three times, according to the Forest Service data, and again, it's woefully inadequate and incomplete, but the latest set of data showed that it increased two or three times the visitation in wilderness on these two national forests. And that is an issue as well, just the numbers of us, and how do we deal with that? how in our society, I, and we've largely forgotten to look at that. Um, yeah, well, it's a tricky issue because we want people to go out in the forest, right? right? We want them to experience their public lands, but also those of us with motivations about protection, we know that unless people really experience it, they're not going to care about it. So on one hand, yeah, get out there. On the other hand, we're loving it to death. So what do we do? Do we, here's, let me, this is an idea and tell me what you think of this. So we get a bunch of people to dress up as Bigfoot and scare people out of the area so they don't go out there. But of course, that's actually going to bring in 10 times as many people. So that will right. backfire. So that's that's my only idea. So what else do you got? Well, I think we need to look at some maybe harder types of ideas for us to accept as a society. Um, I mean, obviously, one of the big issues that that we're facing and we've sort of skirted around that is there are more and more and more people and we need to deal with that in a realistic way. And that's not, of course, the purpose of this discussion to talk about that. But short of that, I think we need to look at issues of carrying capacity. The Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management, the Park Service um, and Fish and Wildlife Service tend to have experts in 
different fields that deal with carrying capacity, for example, or let's say livestock. No, they don't do a great job, but at least they have a scientific basis for that. Um, we've sort of forgotten that when it comes to recreation. We may need to um, have things that I don't particularly personally like, but they may be inevitable in some places, like permit systems. Mm -hmm. There's only so many permits for certain places. We may have to uh, do that. One of the things that I've found that draws people to um, maybe the backcountry is if roads are continually improved, then that draws more people into areas and has maybe a greater impact. Maybe what we need to do, we talked about maybe road removal in some places, but maybe we don't need to upgrade to every uh, backcountry road out there. Maybe we shouldn't uh, upgrade them. Um, and the, but yet a lot of the money is targeted towards improving road conditions rather than letting them be uh, as they are now, which might be a high clearance road rather than a road for passenger cars. So that can help uh, alleviate crowding in some of those more sensitive areas if they happen to coincide with, uh, let's say, a more primitive kind of road system. Yeah, so, we, we might well, have I, to, sorry, go ahead. I think those are a couple of ideas to consider. Yeah, I think those are reasonable ideas to start discussing. I mean, I don't like the idea of restrictions in terms of just being able to out, go out there and hike, but at a certain point in time, what are we going to do? Here in Colorado, we've had, because of the COVID thing and people didn't have anything else to do, record amounts of people hiking, and they did shut down some trailheads because there are just too many damn people and they couldn't get away from each other without giving people diseases. So it was an interesting way of them deciding all of a sudden there's too many people. In the past, I don't believe they had done that because they're like, well, whatever, it's just a lot of people there. Now they had more of a reason to do that. So maybe that's a good thing and it's getting people used to. Guess what? If it's a full parking lot, well, you, you picked badly. You should have done better research and not gone to the most popular trailhead in the county. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's a good idea to look at that. In some places, um, we have, quote, hardened them so they can stand more people. There's certain campgrounds, you know, they have a road in there and they have the, the pavement or, you know, gravel on the places where the picnic table is and the tent site and whatnot. You know, and th those are efforts to be able to uh, accommodate more people with uh, less of an impact but recognizing that places that are high-use areas aren't necessarily going to be the place, same places that are going to be uh, used by larger species of wildlife. You may see uh, a variety of birds, for example, small birds, but you're not going to see the larger, uh, for the most part, the larger uh, mammalian species out there, be they ungulates or predators or uh, or even some of the larger uh, birds. Mm -hmm. So let's get into a couple controversial offshoots of this and see if you want to address this. And by controversial, yeah, you mentioned population, basically. We just did a podcast on that. I agree that's controversial, but this is probably more controversial, and this is bikes and dogs. So I'd be just curious to get your opinion on stuff because 
Well, first of all, let's just cover dogs real quick. So I love dogs. I don't currently have a dog. I used to have a dog. I love my friend's dogs. There's no question that they scare off wildlife. Should there be any attention paid to that or is that just not really something worth worrying about? Well, I, I think, it, again, that's a case-by-case -case basis and I think certainly in certain places it is. It's thought that in some places uh, the disease transmission from dogs to wild canids, um, specifically wolves, uh, has been a problem, especially in a, um, in a place where uh, the habitat is uh, restricted, say, for example, an island. So I think that is definitely worth looking at. National parks tend to um, restrict that use uh, to uh, paved areas, for example, and that's for those very reasons. So that's one thing people need to look at. And I, too, uh, had a dog. don't have one now because um, our great beloved dog just uh, unfortunately passed away uh, mm -hmm several months ago, but I'm always cognizant of that. Uh, that's an issue. And bikes, bicycles, uh, I'm a firm believer that anything that, like bikes in the backcountry, create problems. And especially if you want to see species like grizzlies. There have been a few incidences this year in the Northern Rockies here where I live, where bike Bicyclists have run into, literally run into grizzly bears. There was the tragedy up near Glacier National Park a couple of years ago uh, where a, a bicyclist ran into a grizzly bear and was killed um, because the bear was so startled and angry. It felt like it was being attacked. I mean, literally, that's what they think happened is that person literally ran into the bear. Mm -hmm. But they move silently and they move much more quickly than a human on foot moves. And so I'm not a fan of bicycles in the backcountry on backcountry trails. Uh, bicycles certainly have a place, and that's the way I prefer to commute uh, to work. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a bicycle trail where I live kind of out, outside of uh, the town of Moscow, which is the college, uh, town University of Idaho. And so I like to bike into uh, work on a trail. So I like to ride a bike, and I probably ride it as much or more so that even some of the mountain bikers do. But I think in the backcountry, especially in wild lands, um, and of course they're prohibited in wilderness, uh, but because that use has exploded, and I remember back when I was younger, before there were ever such a thing as mountain bikes, and I was out backpacking and hiking then. So I'm old enough to know the backcountry without that, and there's a lot of pressure now uh, to allow bikes in many more places, and there's a lot of um, trails being constructed illegally on the national forests and elsewhere for bicycle use. So I think that's that's a problem and an issue too. And unfortunately, human beings don't want to be told no. Mm -hmm. And so for every new gadget we have, the uh, bicycles now that can go in many places, or drones that people can take everywhere now and fly around, and maybe we'll have have. Uh, human-powered little helicopter drones soon, who knows? Uh, but that's, you know, that really is an issue that we need to look at, and we have to show some humility and restraint uh, on our public lands and in the backcountry. Yeah, it's a tricky topic like a lot of these because, again, we want more people in the woods. They're not on a 
you know, they're not using oil, they're not particularly noisy. And then you think, well, they're also potential advocates for wild lands. So would you say that, that um, mountain bikers are, and cyclists organizations are good allies in terms of land protection? I would say no. In fact, I think I've put them, they're even probably worse than the off-road vehicle community because I think they're more vehement about it. And I'm speaking of the organizations and not speaking of individuals. Right. But because they don't like wilderness, because, you know, mechanization, mechanized transport is not allowed. But there's a lot of, again, the research I um, cited uh, during this discussion points to the fact that bicycles have uh, greater impact on wildlife than, than people walking. Again, it's the speed. But maybe what people ought to think about doing is riding to the trailhead. Right. On your bicycle, ride to the trailhead and then go. And I've done that, too, as well. So uh, that's uh, one way to look at that um, bicycle issue. But, yes, it gets down to um, having some restraint and recognizing that most people that ride bikes um, I would say the vast majority are also able to walk in some of these places. And rather than trying to open up the National Wilderness Preservation System to bicycles, I think we have to recognize that people can go there on, on their feet and that most people that ride bicycles are also able to walk, too. In fact, they're some of the most fit people out there. So they're maybe even more so than the average American able uh, to walk in some of these places. So, yes, it's good to get out into the into the back country people need to understand and have that kind of that sense of self discovery and not look at the national force as a commodity or something to be sold and i'm afraid that's what the recreation industry does they're trying to sell you an experience but this kind of journey of self-discovery out there i think is really important and that's why uh, i think we have to be careful about spending more money on infrastructure and whatnot and just allowing people to discover uh, the wild themselves. And obviously there needs to be some education, especially in some places uh, um, when you're dealing with a species like a grizzly or a mountain lions or whatnot. But I think um, that, that self-discovery is really important part of what makes our public lands and especially the wildest part of our public land is so important and unique to us as humans, as well as, and we can't forget this being a refuge for many species that don't do well in places where there's a high density of human beings. Yeah, I've always rode a bike. I did a lot of commuting with bike. Uh, I like to ride bikes on back roads, some trails, not so much places like maybe Utah, where it's just these these back jeep trails out into the middle of the wilderness but anytime that there's a trail itself for the most part i rather walk because i want to look around i want to see what's going on i want to experience the place and anytime i'm on a bike it's sort of like just about getting there and of course you're you're looking to make sure that you don't hit a rock so you're really not experiencing the wild in the same way uh, i'm certainly not opposed to it but i do think yeah there are definitely areas that it shouldn't be allowed. And at the same time, I was surprised that 
more cyclists, more mountain bikers weren't advocates for at least some wild spaces. I thought that they were. There were people who would complain about mountain bikers. And I'm like, you know, come on, of all the folks to worry about, why them? But over time, I realized, oh, man, no, they're not. Most of them, obviously some of them are, but most of them are not on the same page. They're coming at it with a different mentality. And the biggest wake up call for me was several years ago. It's not quite the same thing, but basically this area that's become a wildlife refuge, but is contaminated with plutonium. It's called Rocky Flats. I did a podcast on that. So it's a former nuclear weapons site. They opened it to wildlife refuge, mostly just to keep development off. And then more recently, they wanted to build trails and I interviewed for this article, I was writing these cyclists group that were pushing really hard for these trails. And there's tons. I mean, it's undisputable that there's plutonium contamination. So I asked them, do you have any concerns? I understand you guys want more bike trails. Do you have any concerns about this? And he's saying, no, our official position is no concerns at all. And it's like, I'm sorry, but that's ignorant. And it pushes, it basically spits in the face of, decades of environmental advocates for years saying this is not a safe area and the cyclists here would just we want more trails so i realize in that case maybe it doesn't apply across the board but how single-minded a lot of these folks can be and yeah it's just not a great use of space right like you can look at it this way so if i have a a 10 mile hike that's that's a that's a whole day's outing for me on my feet right on a bike yeah. that takes like what an, an hour or something an hour and a half like no time mm -hmm. depending on the terrain so it's like you've just chewed up i mean you're literally chewing up the trail of course there's that issue but you're chewing up the space a lot quicker than you need to i i think that's that's true and it and that's why i think wilderness is so important uh to us and because it allows us to slow down and walk and or in some cases uh, be on a canoe a little canoe and paddle about mm -hmm. whatever it's it's a much slower more contemplative and howard zoneiser the author of the wilderness act wrote a great piece about the need for wilderness back in the mid-1950s and how contemplation was really an important part of that and i think that's maybe what's missing we we live in such a and I don't like using this word because I think it has all the wrong connotations, but we're in such a fragmented or tribalized uh, society right now. Uh, people that engage in one kind of form of recreation tend to become very uh, clannish and look down on others. And it's become, it's infected, I think, the recreation um, sector and it's infected us as, as human beings on in almost every aspect of life. It's almost this hyper-politicization of, of our culture. It's really strange to me um, being an older person now and, and seeing these changes have been made. And, you know, when I look at a piece of legislation getting back to the Great American Outdoors Act, yes, I think that many of the aspirations behind the bill, trying to uh, purchase land or even trying to maintain some kind of infrastructure out there that needs to be maintained aren't bad, but you have to look at how do you go about doing that? You have to look at that funding mechanism. You have to look at, do we need to do all these things? Because now it's just become a wish list 
uh, it seems, of, of recreation projects uh, under the guise of infrastructure, and it may not be the best use of money, uh, even for those purposes. Yeah, I think those of us who appreciate the wild nature, wildlife, we have to accept that we can't just point our fingers at the logging industry and stuff like that. Sometimes it's us, right? Sometimes it's those of us going out there too much. At the same time, I'm not going to stop hiking. So it's, I think it's a good thing in that we realize that it's not always an us versus them. Of course, to a certain degree it is, right? I'm not out there on my ATV, so that for sure, I'm not putting that impact. So that's that's the case. But I am also out there in the forest and I am taking up space. So it's kind of good that I can say, okay, what is my footprint here? How might I be contributing in a negative way? And then maybe how can I contribute in a positive way? So just to conclude this, what should we do? Should we just should we just stay at home on the computer and not go out in the woods, or should we try to find a way to do this in a lower impact way? What's your recommendation for us as individuals, and maybe something to advocate for on the larger scale? Well, I think again, I got back to the idea of restraint uh, and humility. Yes, I think it's good to be out, but I think we have to have some restraint, and we may not go out as much. Uh, and we may choose not to go to certain places that are sensitive or go uh, at certain times of the year. For example, maybe it's best not to go hiking through a bighorn sheep lambing area mm. during lambing season, for example, even though it might be really neat to see the, the baby bighorn sheep, mm. you know, the young uh, lambs. Um, so that's one idea of maybe not going there, at least at that time, uh, but also, I think we have to be conscious of, of, of how we're interacting out there and trying to have as low of, of an impact as possible. So it's, it's a mixture of all those things. No, we shouldn't just stay by our computer. I think people do need to get out, at least most human beings do. But I think we have to be cognizant of our impacts and just be conscious of those things. Yeah, I think restraint is the right word. As Americans, we're not very good at that, but I think it's a learnable skill. And I have faith that people can, over time, take that into account. And I'm going to do my best to put the word out about that. That's why I wanted to do this podcast to talk about this topic that isn't covered as much. But it does all tie back into things like industrial destruction. So, like you said, this stuff is being funded by drilling so it's really not a separate issue it's all we have to look at it all as one one big piece and i really appreciate the work that you're doing well thank you so much josh for having me on your show absolutely